which God deals with Jacob. And what God is trying to do is he's trying to make him a man of God. And sometimes we think about that. What does it mean to be a man or woman of God? You know, that's God's objective. Sometimes Christians are considered that, though none of us really think we deserve that description. But that's what God is doing in our life. And all that means is that God is trying to make us more like himself, more like the person God intended us to be. We often forget that at, at the fall, that image of God was, was, tarred, was, was scarred because of sin, was tarnished in our lives. Sin created in us a rebellious attitude, a selfish attitude, a self-serving mentality in which we put me first rather than God first. One in which we have a desire for the, for the distasteful things of this world, the, which described in 1 John 2 as, the, as our lusts for the world and all that it has to offer. And all those things have ruined our relationship and has hindered us to, from functioning as God has originally designed. And that's why when God sent the Lord Jesus Christ, he was implementing a rescue plan, a deliverance. And though we as human beings sometimes look at that as odd and, and think that, well, I don't need, some people think, well, I don't need any help. My life is going on just fine. We don't recognize that God gives us throughout Scripture repeated warnings, which really could be a promise because God's warnings come true just as well as his promises do, that, that if we sow to our flesh, that means if we live a life uh, persistent in the flesh, pursuing ungodly appetites in the world, it will bring destruction. That's a warning. God warns us over and over and over again. And it's no different than sometimes with our children. We warn them of certain behaviors, hanging out with the wrong, wrong people, and, you know, allowing, watching or sitting on their social media and observing the wrong stuff. It brings destruction. It destroys lives. It destroys families. It destroys peoples and nations. And God's objective was to rescue us from that, from the, not only from the penalty of sin, from eternal hell, but he wants to rescue us from those habitual things that sometimes we don't even realize destroy us. I mean, what person who you may know or observe that had been overcome by some form of substance abuse, when they, when they started down that road, thought, that they were going to be a victim. They thought they had it under control and things were okay. You see, we're blind to, the, to those consequences, but God isn't, and that's why he warns us and takes heed. And that's why part of his rescue plan is not only to rescue us from hell through, through saving us through the Lord Jesus Christ and, and asking us to simply put our faith in him, but then he seeks to, through his word, bring light to our lives, light that dispels the darkness of our thinking and our perspectives and our attitudes and our priorities that is... That is that that will lead to good consequences, that will lead to abundance of life and, and bounty in life and, and blessing in, in our families as well. And that's what God's doing with Jacob here in this passage. God begins to deal with Jacob personally. God wants Jacob to be more than simply the recipient of the covenant promises. We've seen that. He wants him to be more than just the one on which he would shower his blessings, and he has done that. God wants Jacob to be a godly man just as he would desire that you and I would become men and women of God. More than just Christians on our way to heaven, but people, as Ephesians 4.1 says, who walk worthy of their calling. People through which God can make a spectacle of his love and grace and before the world, so much so that the world can see Jesus in us. They see the difference and the distinction for those who walk in the light and according to the truth of God's word. They, people should see that difference. That's God's intention, his design, and that's what he's doing in our lives as he seeks to make us more like himself. And so, we got, so that's what God's doing here in the life of Jacob. See, up to this point, Jacob has lived his life by lying, cheating, swindling, and, and, and manipulating. That's how he got through life. 
We see it from his birth all the way up through this point in his life. He, was, he, he had a great self survival instinct that he relied upon. But that doesn't mean he was a godly man, even though God had chosen him and blessed him. And in this chapter, we can learn some lessons from how God seeks to tame us in reality, how to, to bring us to a point of recognition that the best place to be in life is to be in a right relationship with God, to be standing upon the truth of God's word. That is not only right before God, it is safe for us. It is what brings stability and assurance for the future to our lives. And so here we find Jacob here in this passage anticipating meeting Esau. He is thinking about getting there. And he comes to this place where God, the angels of God, tells us first of all in these first couple verses, where the angels of God meet him. He calls it God's camp, Mahanaim, which means a double camp. He simply recognized this is God's camp and it's my camp. You know, and there's nothing more said of this venture. It's interesting that this is mentioned, but nothing is said about what transpired. It simply meant that, that Jacob came face to face with the angels of God and he must and obviously ministering to him. One thing we can assume, or maybe conjecture at least, is that this may have been a reminder to Jacob of God's promise to be with him. Remember, that was the key, key element of his promise to Jacob. When, where I'm calling you, remember, I will go with you. I will go before you. And here, when, when Jacob recognizes that God had sent his angels, it may have been that reminder that God keeps his promises. Especially now as he faced Esau, who some 20 years previously had threatened to kill him for his deception. And if Jacob would have remembered and would remember God's promises, he would not have to fear Esau as we see in this passage. As he became, verse 7 tells us, he became greatly afraid. You see, folks, God gives us his promises so that we need not fear and fret when trouble is on the horizon. Because in life, we are going to have we're going to have troubles and trials that are going to cause us to fret, worry, and even despair. But God gives us promises of his favor towards us, such as greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And we have promise after promise that God gives us so that when that trouble presents itself, we can trust and not be afraid, as the Bible says. Now, fear and wormy, wormy, wow, okay, <laughs> worry, Maybe it is time to retire. <laughs> fear and, yeah, I don't know anybody named Wormy, by the way. Fear and worry may be normal reactions to troubles. When something presents itself that seems insurmountable or overwhelming, it's normal. It is normal. It's, it's not like we're uh, abnormal if we fear or trouble when, when troubles present itself. But we have to remember, from the world's perspective, Christians aren't normal, are we? Well, we might not have been normal before we became a Christian, but... Christians aren't normal, and I say that because we are different because we, we are children of God who have a heavenly Father that has promised us his sovereign care. We don't, have, we don't have to have the normal reaction to trials and troubles. We have a Savior who guides us, a Spirit who teaches and empowers us. We have the promises to comfort us, and we're in good hands, aren't we? And though we might initially have this reaction of <gasps> fear and panic and worry, we, we fall back on the promises of God who promises to watch over us as we trust in his promises. And sometimes we find that all those promises that we've heard about all of a sudden come back to mind as God brings us sometimes comfort or wisdom or direction or strength in the face of trouble. Well, here what we find in Jacob's re reaction to this uh, Esau coming with 400 men 
is, is his best plan for survival, which is really, it seems here, an element of self-reliance. It seems whatever courage Jacob may have received from this reminder of God's presence was quickly forgotten. Sound familiar? You quickly forget the promises of God? Imagine that. And it quickly disappeared when the, when the news of Esau and his troop of 400 men were marching his direction. And he, and he thought nothing but the worst, which is always what we tend to do as well, isn't it? We assume the worst. And, and that trouble, kind of trouble, has a tendency to cause us to forget or even doubt the promises of God or the reality of his assurance that he's got this, that he, that he gives us repeatedly. So he comes up with a survival plan in verses 7 and 8. He's going to divide into two companies. And maybe he can save half his people and his animals, appear to be the thought. He said, we're going to divide into two companies, and, and we're going to assume when Esau comes, he's going to railroad one or the other, and maybe I can save half of my people and my flocks. And, and the question you have to ask yourself is, does God save halfway? That's not, you know, he'd forgotten, I think, the promise of God. Remember when God said it's time to go back to the land, God says, I'm going to be with you, and that he had lost sight of that promise, hadn't he? And it maybe it's all because at this point in life, Jacob really didn't know God personally. He knew God was a great God, the Almighty God. He knew God had made a covenant promise with him, and God had fulfilled some of those promises. And so maybe Jacob had begun to get to know God in his years with Laban, as we saw as he left with the abundance that he left with. But he didn't seem to know God. But, you know, in verses 9 through 12, he turns to prayer, doesn't he? When Jacob said in verse 9, O God of my father, Abraham and Isaac, the Lord who said to me, he turns to prayer. Now maybe this should have been the first thing he should have done before he came up with a plan. Maybe he should have turned to the Lord first. That's always our tendency. It's like when we do everything we can and we can't find any other solutions to our problems, well, now maybe it's time to prayer. But at least he prayed. We're getting somewhere. Maybe Jacob is beginning to get to know the character of God and, and as God who is faithful to his people and keeps his promises. And maybe Jacob is coming to the end of his self-reliance, his manipulating and conniving self. And maybe he's there because God has, a, has him in a place where it's hopeless. 400 men, he's not a fighting people. He doesn't have that kind of army. He doesn't have a chance. It's absolutely hopeless. Except the one place we find hope, in God himself. God who had promised him. And maybe finally God is getting him somewhere because God brings him, as he often does us, to a hopeless situation in which there is no solution. And we finally have to turn to God. You know, and, and that's one of the efforts God makes in bringing people to, to salvation in the first place. Is bringing them to the place where they see that there is no way they can save themselves. There is no hope to, of achieving heaven. And the Bible teaches us that, that salvation is not by works as any man should boast. Salvation is not through our own efforts. It's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to God's mercy, he saves us. But sometimes God has to put an exclamation point on that verse and bring it to the point where we realize there's no way I can be good enough to get to heaven before we turn to the one who has provided heaven. You know, Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, There's not a just man upon the earth who does good and does not sin. And we realize that sin is against the holy God. And sin creates in us or condemns us in reality. And we creates in us an awareness that we're condemned to eternal damnation. We have one place to look. 
John 3.18 says, He who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already. And that's a fact that every person needs to come to in, in life is to realize that they're under condemnation before God simply because sin has offended a holy God. But that's the bad news, and that might not seem fair and unreasonable, but neither was it fair and reasonable for God to send his only son to take our place, to take our condemnation. So that when we believe in him, the next phrase says, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. When we believe on him, we can know we have eternal life, isn't it? John 5, 24, a couple chapters later, says this. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. And that's what God gives us life. God gave his son so that he could give us life, that the forgiveness of sins, life eternal and life abundant. And that's what God often has to do, is bring us to a point in our lives where we realize that we need a Savior. But then as we grow in our Christian life, he brings us to the point often he's bringing Jacob, where we realize that, you know, life is too futile unless I put God first, unless I honor him in my life, unless I seek him. And in this prayer that he, he prays in this passage, we see some wonderful attitudes. I think there's a great example that Jacob sets here as God is bringing him to this point of the end of himself. And he says, first of all, he, in, in this request, in verse 9, he reminds the Lord of his promises. The Lord who said to me, verse 9, Return to your country and to your family, and I will deal well with you. And then at the end of verse 12, or verse 12, he says the same thing, for you said. You said. Starts the prayer and kind of ends the prayer with, for you said. He claims the promises of God. That's a great way to pray, pray, to claim and recognize the promises of God. Now, when we think about prayer, it's not that this man was a prayer warrior, in fact, sometimes the thought of that, the idea that Christians have adopted that their power in prayer can be misunderstood. I read some of someone recently who wrote on this topic and said, you know, the power isn't in the prayer, it's in the person we're requesting a request to. It's in God himself. There's no power in, the, in our breath or even in the sincerity of our hearts. The power is in God himself. And maybe if we have some sincerity, we can rest in the answers he gives us, we can trust him to take our requests and consider them as he promises to do. But the power is with God. And here he's exhibiting that in the sense that he recognized, God, you made the promises. You, made, you promised me. And that's, he's exhibiting a faith here in this prayer to recognize, you know, God, I don't understand what's going on. Life's spinning out of control. I may be facing my last day on the earth. But you made me a promise, God. You promised to be with me and, and to bless me and to prosper me in the land. It's a wonderful thing to pray the promises of God. And in verse 10, he goes on in expressing a humility. When he says, I am not worthy of the least of all your mercies and of all the truth which you have shown your servant. I'm not worthy. <coughs> Interesting. I'm not sure Jacob of a few days, weeks, or months before this would have, would have had this perspective. And maybe J Jacob is having, having this, you know, this, as we call it today, coming to Jesus mentality of facing himself and recognize that I'm not worthy. He recognizes himself as undeserving. You know, when we get a glimpse of our holy God, our almighty God, we realize that we aren't worthy to stand in his presence in reality because of his righteousness. He wants us to stand in his presence. 
but because of his awesome holiness, we are unworthy. Remember Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 when he had a vision of the throne room of God and he fell on his face and said, Woe is me, for I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And Jacob is at that point. And it's a point we need to come to if God is going to, is going to bring surrender to our lives to realize how much we need him. You know, like it or not, God has created us to live in dependence on him, to live in relationship with him. And that dependence isn't, isn't slavery, per se, as we think of, of evil taskmasters. It's a place of bounty and blessing. God has created us for a fellowship with him, to enjoy his love, to share his joy, to rest in his peace. It's the place God designed humanity. Now, those things are all things the world's chasing after, all over the world. But they'll forget to look to the one place they can find it, in Jesus, the Prince of Peace, the Savior of mankind. And it takes your humility to recognize that we need him. So what a tremendous attitude he displays here. I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy of your deliverance, of your rescue, and of your favor. And he mentions here, in that context, he says, for I have crossed over this Jordan with my staff, and now I've become two companies. He recognized maybe that his plan made him more vulnerable. His plan was kind of futile. He says, how stupid could I be, he might have been thinking. And that's a good place to come, actually. Humility. And then in verse 11, we find a tremendous honesty when he says, when he, when he says and requests, deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I'm terribly afraid. I fear him. I'm terrified. That's just an honesty. You know, sometimes we don't like to admit that. That's just honesty before God. God, I'm terrified. Most people say, well, if you don't think those are Christians, you know, self-righteous Christians, they always sin to be afraid. No, fear is normal. But we overcome our fear by casting our cares upon him, by relying on him. And Jacob's just being honest. He says, I'm terrified. Please deliver me from my brother. He was absolutely convinced that Esau was marching to annihilate him because of his rash statement from 20 years before. And so Jacob, in his honesty, recognizes his only hope was deliverance by the power of God. Now, what we have to ask ourselves, if we kind of step back a minute and observe this, is this just one of those prayers that people pray when they get in trouble and then forget? You know, whatever commitment they made to God, they forget. Because that happens. We get into big trouble and we think, God, I'll serve you 100%. You know, when, and then when the trouble decreases a little bit, God, I'll serve you 80%. And then when life gets a little better, God, I'll, maybe I'll serve you 50%. That's how it goes. That's comical. I think there's been probably you know, skits and movies made about that, but that's how people are with God. It's just one of those times when by the time the trouble passes and life is good, we forget God. And that's why some people have said in church history, sometimes uh, times of peace and prosperity are harder for Christians than the time of adversity. Because in adversity, in adversity, we come to the end of ourselves and recognize that we need to walk with the Lord. But in our bounty, we think life's good. I've got this. I don't need anything. Is this one of those prayers? Is this one of those places he's at in life? Is, or is this a real change of attitude? And as you consider that mentality, I think that's why this next section is maybe inserted into this because what we find here, we read here in this passage through verse 21, 
But then we find in verses 22 through 30, this event, or 32 if you prefer, of uh, Jacob wrestling with God. Something, a confusing passage, hard to understand. And, you know, you read this, you think, why in the world is this sort of in the middle? Because in verse chapter 33, then it picks up again, Jacob and Esau coming to meet face to face. So why is this thrown in here at this time in life? And it can only be, be because it's relevant to what's going on in the life of Jacob. It's apparent here that God, the Lord is dealing with Jacob to bring him from one of those prayers that people pray when they're in big trouble and then forget when life is good to a person who has sincere faith, who sincerely wants to walk with God, being, as we say today, a Christian who is real in their walk with God, a Christian who hears God's word when it is te- taught and preached. And so we find, let's read, a, let's read through this and then let's just make some observations. Verse 22. And he arose that night and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven sons, and crossed over the ford of, of, J- of Jabbok. He took them, sent them over the brook, and sent over what he had. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. Now when he saw that he did not prevail against them, he touched the socket of his hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? He said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. And Jacob asked, saying, tell me your name, I pray. And he said, why is it that you ask about my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved. Just as he crossed over Peniel, the sun rose on him and he limped on his hip. Therefore, to this day, the children of Israel did not eat the muscle of that shank, which was on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip and the muscle of that strength. Unusual account, isn't it? Hard to understand. Maybe we don't get all of it. But it is apparent that the Lord is dealing with Jacob because the person he seems to be wrestling with is called the angel of the Lord. And we won't turn there, but if you someday want to read on your own in Hosea chapter 12, um, this, is, this, this account is repeated. And it says here in Hosea 12, 3, he took his brother by the heel in the womb, and in, the st- and in his strength he struggled with God. Yes, he struggled with the angel, of, angel and prevailed. He wept and sought favor from him. He found him in Bethel, and there he spoke to us. That is the Lord God of hosts. The Lord is his memorable name. And so many people believe that this is the pre-incarnate Christ in a theophany, in an appearance as a, as a man who wrestled with Jacob that night. And the point we need to recognize is that the man wrestled with him. And one commentator made that point. The man came and wrestled with Jacob. That's what it says in verse 26. The man wrestled with him. And it could be that, I think it was Dr. McGee who points out that Jacob probably didn't want to wrestle. He wanted to be alone. In verse 24, we find him alone. Alone. Remember, he sent his companies across. He had Laban behind him, Esau ahead of him. He didn't need a third enemy right now, opponent. He didn't need this in his life. He wanted to be alone and, and, and maybe try to find out what, figure out what was going to happen in the day ahead. But God had other plans. God said, you might want to be alone, but I've got other plans. I'm not through with you. And God apparently wanted to conquer this man before he entered the land of promise and blessing. And though Jacob had been one chosen to inherit the covenant promises, he had not yet learned to walk with God. He had not yet conquered his will. 
And that's what God wants in our lives. He wants full surrender. And that might sound, you know, subhuman to some to think of surrender. But all it is is a record of surrender. It's all the recognition is that God is a sovereign king and Lord of all, God of gods, king of kings. And that his word is, is our guidebook in life. And that's what God wants in our lives. It's not for us to lead a double life, a double standard, to be Christians with a little, you know, that with a go to church, who live for ourselves during the week and sprinkle on a little churchianity on Sundays. God wants us to, to walk with him every day. He wants our hearts, doesn't he? And we know that. And God here is accomplishing that when he weakens him. Comes to this point in this wrestling match that he touches his hip and he makes him lame. Now we know that God wouldn't have had to wrestle for more than a nanosecond in reality. But God is making a point here. And God didn't have to just touch his hip. But God is bringing it to Jacob, showing him in all his stubbornness, for Jacob wrestled all night in his stubbornness and his refusal to surrender. He's showing him his weakness. And though here it's a physical weakness, it also represents a spiritual weakness. That our, that our inability to overcome the things of God, to rebel against the ways of God, to neglect the things of God. We need to walk in dependence upon the Lord. And that's indicated here when he goes from wrestling to clean. Notice the change. In verse 26, he says, let me go. The day breaks, he says, I will not let you go until you bless me. Now that's a vital change. From wrestling, fighting against God, to clinging to God. That's a key I think that's a key change in this passage. Where he goes from refusing to surrender to clinging, to hanging on. God himself, and that's seen in his desire to be blessed. So maybe taking all night represents to us our stubbornness to submit to God, to surrender to him, to let God be God in our lives, to put him first, to respect his word. And sometimes you have to wonder how many wasted years there are in our lives when we refuse to get real with God, to take his word seriously, to be engaged with him moment by moment and day by day and allowing him to accomplish his will to open his word or go to a Bible study or come to church and expect to be taught, convicted, and instructed and rebuked. Because that's what 2 Timothy says the word does. You see, at this point, I believe Jacob recognized the Lord, and I think we find that here in verse 30 when Jacob confers it, when he says, I've seen God face to face. He had recognized the God who had blessed him was a God who was seeking to humble him. This came at a critical juncture in Jacob's life. He's struggling with Laban. He's facing Esau and maybe facing himself that lonely night there when God met him. And though he had through the years recognized God's goodness to him, it was time for Jacob to learn to trust him with his life, to walk by faith, to become a godly man, a man of prayer, a man of God. And that's exactly what God is doing with us when he brings trials to our lives because our trials have a various effects on us. It exposes our sin, our failures. It, it reveals our weakness and our inability to fix things, to make things right, to get things right in life, or even to rescue us from sometimes habitual and enslaving sin. And then he often convicts us regarding our walk. You know, Titus 2.14, that great passage that talks about the grace of God, says that God's objective is to make people zealous for good works. He expects a zeal from people. 
There should be a for hunger for people. You know, we look back to the early church and we think of its effectiveness in its community and how it affected the, the, the neighborhood for Christ. It was a time when, when you couldn't keep people out of church. You didn't have to lock people in. You had to lock them out because there was no room. There was a zeal. There was a hunger. There was a reality of a recognition that life is short. And as I mentioned last week, I think even as we look at the events going on in our world, as possibly the stage is being set. Now, we don't know the days or seasons. I'm not saying this, that the rapture's around the corner. It's going to happen this week, so, so, you know, so get your affairs in order. But the stage is being set. History, prophecy is occurring possibly before our eyes, and that should impact us. With the reality, if God did give us a date and said on December 1st, rapture's going to come, how would we live the next month? How would we live? What would we do? Would we go back to painting our hubcaps, you know, and scrubbing the knobs on our cabinets and all those things? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think we'd see the millions around us that need to know the Savior. And we'd be in prayer and in boldness for him. And you know, God tells us to, to live in light of his coming. And that's what he's seeking to do with Jacob here, to, make a, to create a man who is zealous of good works. You know, I've heard... I'm going to share this observation because I've heard it from many different fronts, it seems like, in the last month or two. And many teachers are commenting that churches are filled with Christians who are not really serious about their faith. The churches might be full. They might be attended. But how many are sensitive to the voice of God? I'm not saying God's going to you know, come up and whisper sweet nothings in your ear. But he's going to speak through his word. If you're a believer, you have the spirit of God. And his objective is to teach you the deep things of God. And when that teaching, it's going to bring conviction because whenever the light of truth comes into our life, it exposes darkness. So we have teaching and conviction. They always go hand in hand. Do we receive it? Are we sensitive to it? I remember as a young person and being part of a church that was thriving and growing. And, you know, as young people, you know, we like to use all our slang and we think, boy, that mess just ripped me apart today. You know, I don't know if people say I'd say that as an adult. But you get the point. Are we, are we there in our lives? Do we allow the Spirit of God to speak to us when you open the Word of God and, and, and read it and hear it and whatever? Tony Evans recently compared this to um, like having a radio receiver, and he compared the new life we have in Christ, the Spirit of God within, within us. He, just this week, he mentioned this, that it's like having a receiver. When we have new life in Christ, we can receive the, the uh, message from God. We have the ability through the Spirit of God and the new life we have, we can hear the, the things of God. But he said many are sitting in church with their, with their receivers turned off. They might like a good message. They might smile, shake a few hands, and enjoy a few people. But the, but the receivers are turned off. And see, the churches are filled with that. And although as Christians we have the capacity to know the Lord, to grow in our love for him and enjoy his goodness to us, in reality we just end up then, in that case, living in the strength of the flesh with a little churchianity sprinkled in. So how many are like Jacob? They attend church, they hear a nice message, but it never pierces the heart. Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword. It pierces the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, the joints and marrow. It is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. That's the effect the word of God should have on us. But too often when that happens, we leave church thinking, you know, who told that preacher what I did this week? Nobody, by the way. You have the spirit of God. And we blame the preacher. Or we excuse ourselves. And yet God here with Jacob is seeking to humble the man in order to draw closer to his side. And that's not uncommon. 
We see it in the Apostle Paul. Romans 7, Paul talks about, remember his struggles, the harder I try, the behinder I got in my Christian life. Because he hadn't learned to walk in dependence upon the Spirit of God. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul talks about his, his affliction in the flesh, this, this thing that God had sent him to keep him humble because he found out his strength was made perfect in weakness. And we need to come to that place as recorded in 2 Corinthians 3, 5, says not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything is of ourselves, our sufficiency is of God. For God has made us able ministers of the New Testament. It's God, our strength is from him. And that's what we need to, that's the point we need to come to in our lives. One commentator, Fred, Fred Friedrich Buchner, characterized Jacob's divine encounter at the Jabbok River as, he, and I like this quote, as, quote, the magnificent defeat of the human soul at the hands of God. Good quote, because that's what God is doing in our lives. You know, I believe often what hinders us from coming to that point is self-reliance. We're afraid to turn things over to God. We haven't learned to trust him because we haven't opened our eyes to see him. To see his love and his power and his majesty and his glory, his faithfulness to keep his word. Sometimes we think that things in our lives are at risk. Well, if I surrender wholeheartedly to God, then what about my itsy-bitsies? What about my budget? What about my favorite pastimes? You know, what about all these things? You know, I have a routine. I don't want anybody to mess with my routine. Jacob wanted to be alone that night, yet God says, too bad, so sad. We have business to do, deal with. And how silly it is to think that we could run our lives better than the Almighty. And that's the point God wants to bring us to. As you go on in this passage in chapter 33, you find the favorable encounter, <coughs> Jacob and Esau. I'm not going to read that. You can read that at your own time this morning, unless you want to stay for a long time yet. But, so I'll spare you. But I want to make a, a, you know, if you look at verse 4, chapter 33, Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and he wept. Isn't that funny? No need to fear. After all this anxiety, no need to fear. It was a happy encounter, a reunion. You know, we can maybe answer that question this morning. Was Jacob's prayer simply the prayer of a desperate man with a, lot, with a lack of long-term sincerity? If you look at the end of chapter 33, verse 20, it says here at the, at the end of this, when Jacob comes to Canaan, finally, then he moves on and comes to Canaan. It says he erected an altar there and called it El Elohe Israel. Literally, that means God, the God of Israel. Well, that's amazing. Because remember, Israel at that time wasn't really a nation. It was Jacob. He's claiming God for his God. He's not declaring God the God of a nation yet. They weren't there yet. Oh, they were a family with, son, with 11 sons at this point. But Jacob is saying, God is my God. And God had accomplished what he set out to do with Jacob. Through all his life and all the trials and hardships that he had brought him through, through the time with Laban, through this lonely night in the desert when he met God face to face, God had brought Jacob to that point where he said, where he came to that conclusion. And after this point in Jacob's life, you begin to see a more godly man. Not a perfect man, but a more godly man. A man who had, who had got things right with his God, and what an amazing statement. God, the God of Israel. And that's the point God wants to bring each of us. Let's pray. 
Father, thank you for your faithfulness to us, Father. And Father, sometimes we look at the hardships of life and have no idea what you're doing. We even resent them, despise them. We want to claim the one promise in the Bible where it says this too shall pass because we just want to get over it. But we recognize that as a sovereign God who, who controls all, that you are faithful in our lives to bring us to the point that we need to come to in order to enjoy your bounty and your blessing, your goodness, to, to have your peace, to share in your life. And Father, may we respond to you when you show us our inabilities, our weaknesses, our needs, and we see that you are you are a God who would provide those needs, supply them. And you're a God who would walk with us, watch over us each and every day. So, Father, may we take these things to heart. May we respond to your spirit who teaches, convicts, and instructs and rebukes that we might become men and women of God. For your glory we pray in Jesus' name.